0: it's an addiction it's an addiction that I always need more. if you know any wealthy people you know they're they're still driven you know multimillionaires are still driven because it's never enough it's 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 an addiction. Some of the happiest people I've met are the poorest people they've got love they've got community, they have music, they have joy, and some of the most generous people
1: money is only important if it brings insofar as it brings you happiness and Happiness is always experiential, and it's never material. So even when happiness comes originally from a material thing, it's never really satisfying unless it's shared, and then it becomes relational again.
2: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a Certified Financial Planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. This week, we have two, yes, two guests, BJ Gallagher and friends Metcalf. Before we get into this episode, I would like to ask you a favor. If you can kindly head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. Please head over there, leave a review. I really appreciate it because it helps get wonderful guests like Franz and BJ. This was a fantastic conversation. I first heard about BJ and Franz as I came across their book, Being Buddha at Work, 101 Ancient Truths on Change, Stress, Money, and Success. The book was fascinating. I really encourage you to reach out, get a copy of their book, as it offers so many pieces of wisdom from the Buddha, his life, and his teachings. You can hear during the episode the chemistry or the bond that BJ and friends both have. They're really great at sharing the story and bringing it to life, and they do that on this episode today. BJ is an author of over 30 books. Yes, that's correct. 30 books. So she's a prolific author, consultant, a popular speaker, and whether her audience is corporate executives, working women, job seekers, her message is the power of positive doing. Friends is also a fascinating individual. He's a founding member of the Forge Institute for Spirituality and Social Change, and the author of five books, including What Would Buddha Do, a bestseller published in over a dozen languages. Friends continues to inquire into Buddhism and psychology, both from an academic and personal perspective. His journey is just starting, as he would say. And during this episode, we talk about why Zen Buddhism gained interest in the Western world, how we can use lessons from Buddha on taming our internal desires, understanding when is enough enough, especially around money, finding internal peace within ourselves, again, especially with money and learning to dance with detachment and attachment and so many more fascinating conversations. It was a pleasure to talk to BJ and friends. I encourage you to look at their websites, get a copy of their books, as I'm certain you will enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with BJ Gallagher and Franz Netcap. <laughs> BJ and friends, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. BJ, I'm going to ask you a question first. From my Googling, I learned that you have written over 30 books and you've stopped counting. We were talking before the show. You start stopped counting at 30. And when we look at your books, you've tackled a lot of different topics such as Buddhism, leadership, finding yeses and, and no's, perseverance, happiness, spirituality, children, books, and more. I've watched a few videos of you. I see this sense of a, a flare. I look at you have a. I don't know if it's your natural hair color, but it's my camera looks purple. What uh, like <laughs> well, pink is a natural hair color? hot uh, yeah. pink. <laughs> okay, a hot pink. So I assume it's not natural hair color. Looking back on your journey so far, this life journey that we're all in, how has embracing Perry the Peacock's Wisdom of Being Different in a World that Values Conformity, Stability, and Tradition helped you enjoy your journey?
0: Well, I both enjoyed the journey and hated the journey. It it hasn't always been fun being a peacock in the land of penguins because the, the message is you need to change to be accepted by us. That's a painful message. That book is a true story about my five years working at the LA Times And when I left, I was so angry and upset with the painful experience I had there that I just wrote about it. It was a therapy exercise. I'm going to get it out of my system, put it on paper, and then I can move on with my life and be a consultant and a speaker and a workshop leader. What I found is that professionally, peacocks are valued and applauded when they're consultants, when they're outside the organization. If you're inside the organization. There's a pressure to conform and fit in. Like here, put on your penguin suit. So it's an interesting sort of sort of dynamic. So I am much happier as an external consultant, where I can be colorful and flamboyant and creative, and they go, "Wow, she's fantastic!" But as soon as they bring me into an organization and try to make me an employee, then they're really uncomfortable. The penguins are really uncomfortable. So I've just learned that self-employment is the, best, is the best option for me. And regarding the diversity of the books that I write, I'm either a Renaissance woman or I'm a dilettante. I write about business, spirituality, women's issues, kids' books, self-help, whatever interests me and I think I can sell it, I'll write about it. So in fact, I met with a branding, a branding guy a few years ago and he said, I don't know what to do with you. You're like, you're, you're all over the place. Basically, it was the same message. You have to put on a penguin suit to be successful in the world. You can't have these multiple facets. And I went, oh, well, so I guess I'm not going to use a branding guy.
2: You know, I, I feel like when I see your titles and hear your, your response, your branding could be in and around the love of curiosity, just embracing that peacock to, to explore all these Wonderful channels of life if we don't keep those narrow blinkers on.
0: Yeah. I did ask a friend of mine after that conversation with the branding guy, I called her up and I said, Caroline, if I had to put a label on myself, what would that be? She said, oh, you're an inspirational communicator. And I went, oh, okay. Got it. So now I have a label, inspirational communicator, but I can do that. You know, somebody asked me years ago if, because I I did my graduate work in the School of Religion at USC. And somebody asked me if I was going to be a minister. And I said, oh, I already am. I'm like an itinerant minister riding around from place to place, preaching the gospel of humanistic management to anyone who will listen. (laughs) So I minister to people in the workplace where there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And I said, I can be more effective outside the church than inside the church, so I minister to people in the workplace where they're where they're hurting. That's really my my business. That's that's everything I do. I borrowed my mission statement from Mother Teresa, who said, "I'm a pencil in the hand of God," and so my mission statement is, "I'm a laptop in the hands of God."
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there is a real
1: parallel in the church side of that because visiting ministers often. Get really heard by, Mm -hmm. by the congregation in a way that the resident minister doesn't because that guy is just that guy, you know, or gal who has to deal with our everyday stuff. Right. They're not there for inspiration.
0: It's that old saying about you can't be a prophet in your own land or in the consulting business. We say a consultant is anyone who's 500 miles or more away from home. You must have enough penguin in you, though, to, to make that work financially in your
1: life. You know, you support yourself through this. So you have an inner penguin that you, <laughs> you, you need to be in touch with. Richard.
0: One of the chapters in the book is there is a little penguin in all of us. You know, we are creatures of habit. We do have our routines. And my father, I took him to the party we had when we did the, the premiere of the video version of the book. And I went to introduce him to somebody and he stuck out his hand. and He said, hi, I'm Ken Gallagher. I'm the original penguin. <laughs> and I went, what? He was a military man. He was an Air Force officer for 30 plus years. Then he became a banker. And so I was raised by a penguin. He was my hero, except can you imagine his his dismay when the penguin is hatching the egg, you know, because the fathers sit on the eggs too, and out pops his little peacock. <laughs> He's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> he spent the next 60 years trying to shape me up and really only gave up that struggle about 10 years ago. Just finally decided it wasn't going to happen.
2: And it was okay. In my head, now, now I've got parenthood floating through. I have two young kids. of trying to conform them. Or do I let the peacock grow? That's floating through my mind. And also this idea of embracing our inner peacock reminds me of a lot of what we talk about on this podcast. And, and friends, I want to go into a background question with you. But what you were just saying here, BJ, is... A lot of the things that we talk about and we we question on the podcast is something that Ruhab, my friend, the musician who he talked about the idea of peeking out without doubt to see what's on the other side and he was talking about trying to understand our money stories, trying to understand do we need to be in the in the line the socially constructed the social narrative that's been constructed by us that get a job, go to college, go to university, graduate, chase a promotion, and hopefully one day you can retire what for the most part, is to use your words, the penguin. I want to now shift to either of you to this idea of embracing our peacock what what I guess what fears or hurting has that brought in in your lives as you guys both are self employed to some degree and I, I say that because BJ at the top, you talked about how it hasn't always been easy, and I know getting out of the line at times can be a lot more difficult, and we fear that, so based on your own experiences, what
1: challenges have you faced? trying to be that peacock i can speak to that briefly because although i have the sidelight writing books i have the external framework of teaching within a large public university that gives me a, a scaffolding and an and armature and armor against the worry that hopefully embracing your peacock nature would give BJ and I were just talking about this before we started talking to you. In fact, today. So I really have enormous respect for for BJ and other peacocks who have. I mean, we'll talk about the Buddha. I'm sure eventually, but he was one too. He Yes, he he absolutely rejected his his dharma, his duty as a Hindu, and um, that takes a great amount of strength. I think that what's well, one reason why BJ and I work well together is because I, I supply. I think when we write maybe more of the the poetry and the intellectuality and use by the strength and the content and it's a really good combination and the fun you're more fun than
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that but you're right Buddha left the golden cage that his parents had constructed for him it was golden it was beautiful it was designed to shelter him from any suffering in the world And he left. Listen, you're doing the Buddha side. And and he left. So I identified with Buddha a lot when I left. Before I was at the LA Times, I was at at a university. I was at the University of Southern California, where I had spent 12 years, five years as a student, seven years on staff. I taught there as an adjunct professor. And I remember when I left, I was terrified because I had that cultural myth in my head that those who can't do teach and I thought what if that's true what if I can't man I was in my 30s at the time like what if I leave the ivory tower and I fall on my face like I didn't know I just didn't know and I thought well I have to I have to try my wings and if I fall on my face I fall on my face I'll go get another sheltered job and I didn't once I got out it was like whoo why didn't I leave sooner? I had the same feeling when I left my marriage. It was like, whoa! <laughs> the theme of my life is freedom in all the different senses. But I love the, the freedom of self-expression. When it comes to, I'm going to circle back to the bit about being a parent, because I'm also a parent, and Franz and I were just talking about his daughters leaving home. I was the great student. My son's father was a great athlete. So I thought our son would be this wonderful scholar, His father thought he would be this jock. And you know what we got? A musician. A musician. And we're both like, what the hell happened to this egg? (laughs) Where did this come from? And that was a totally different path that neither his father nor I had any experience with. Like, we didn't know how to coach him. He was a musician from the time he was eight years old. And the difference is his father's a penguin and I'm a peacock. So his father is saying well, you should learn some computer skills so you'll have a backup. And I'm going, no, no, no. Give it 150% and set a deadline. And if you don't make it by the deadline, then you go to plan B. But if you've got a fallback position this early, you'll fall back. So don't have a fallback position. Not now, just go for it because that's what a peacock would say. And the penguin is going, no, 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 need to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan B. So different kinds of parenting styles. And, you know, the kid's still in the music business decades later. He's happy. He's his own person. And he was neither the great scholar nor the great jot. He's a, a pale musician who doesn't come out in the daylight.
2: <laughs> well, I guess it it, it it reminds me of letting go of our our desired outcomes
1: we might have of many things. I'm certainly experiencing that as a parent right now since my daughter is not going to the college that I wanted her to go to or in fact, neither of the top two. But she's going to the one that she's drawn to, that she fell in love with on the first day that she visited it. And it's a prestigious college. It's perfectly adequate to the task. But I'm on the side of still wanting her to be, you know, what I want her to be. And um, being perfectly aware that that's never going to be the case. So that dance we do between attachment and detachment and non-attachment is, I I think that's something that never goes away. The child goes away, but they come
0: back. They do. They do. Mine came back several times.
1: Right. I keep telling myself that's going to, I'm hoping my child turns out to be a total slacker and moves back home after college. I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Using the bird metaphor, you know, they leave the nest and sometimes they fall and they need to come back to the nest for a little while, put their feathers back together, and then they launch off again. And, and what we teach them about money, you know, about vocation and money what are the messages we're giving our children about the value of money? And years ago, I read that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And the poor dad was the penguin going, get a job, work hard, work for money, blah, blah, blah. The rich dad says, no, no, make money work for you. And that if you work for money, you'll never get rich. If you make money work for you, that's that's the way you'll get rich. And so teaching our our children about the the role money plays in their lives and the limitations of money for happiness because one of the the myths that almost all Americans buy and maybe it's all around the world is more money is the answer to my unhappiness more money will solve all my problems and buddha pointed out in many different ways that that's a lie that's a myth that's a lie that we tell ourselves because we're confused about what the real source of happiness is
2: yeah I want to jump into that and, and let's let's do that. But before we go there, Franz, I want to ask you a question, a bit about your background that's going to lead us into more about Buddhism and what Buddha has taught us about this desire and money and happiness, because that's where I really want to jump into your minds and have the audience hear is this practice of Buddhism, what we can pull out in term, in terms of cultivating a healthy relationship with money, if that can exist. But... When, when I was looking at your background friends, and this idea of holding on to the outcome actually is interesting because I understand that you you went to Asia, you went to Japan and you want to, you want to explore Buddhism. You had a certain, I believe if the internet is correct, idea of what you were almost going for. But then on your ride home, you had the a realization that Asia Buddhist wasn't right for you, yet you still were interested in the concept of Buddhism. And then you wrote your dissertation on why do Americans practice Zen Buddhism. So maybe fill us in on that experience. And for those of us listening, let's start from what is Zen Buddhism? And how did that desired outcome
1: change for you when you started coming home on that plane? Zen is a form of meditation or a form of Buddhism that focuses on meditation. So Zen is the Japanese word for it, but it comes from China originally. So it has different names in Korea and Vietnam and China and Japan, but it, it they all are just transliterations of the same Sanskrit word dhyana, which just means meditation. So it's the form of meditation that I thought was cool when I was in college, because like the Zen, the Zen te- they are the peacocks of Buddhism, right? Yes, yes. They're, and they really, really complained about how Buddhism was being completely overrun by penny we they didn't use that exact metaphor, <laughs> but it was really. Accurate. It's an accurate perception. Most religions become very penguin It's just a natural function of human organization and the routinization of charisma and all sorts of reasons. So those people seemed really cool. So Zen seemed really cool to me. And the idea of meditation seemed really useful to me because my mind is very much that kind of mind That's the, in Buddhism they call monkey mind because it's always doing this and jumping around and excited by shiny things and so on. And that's not... Very peaceful place to be all the time. So I went to Asia thinking of myself as kind of Buddhist, and how am I going to fit in? And this is where I'll find Buddhism. But but what I found was, hey, you go to the place where the Buddhism is controlled by the penguins, right? And then it's very penguiny. So I thought, well, I don't really fit into Asian Buddhism. And so when I came back to America, I thought, well, if I'm going to fit into Buddhism, it's going to be in American Buddhism where it's on the margins and it's. It's wild and colorful and alive and flexible and responsive to what I would want. So, but I went into graduate school because I realized that I'm, I am a really thinky, thinky. I'm a thinky person. That's the technical term. I knew that I wanted to learn more, and so I fashioned a graduate career in which I could work on intellectually understanding the but also practice it myself. My dissertation was. You know, I was answering that question, why do Americans practice Zen? I was also answering, why does France practice Zen? And, you know, practicing it to find out and talking to people. And I'm still interested in answering that question. I'm still not quite certain certain why I do anything. It seems to vary depending on the context, which is a very Buddhist answer, because who am I anyway, really, right? We are our context and the relationship we have with the other things that are arising and passing away in that context. So I'm still doing that ever since. Well, you, you answered my follow-up question. I was going to ask
2: you, what did you find out? But I, I appreciated that answer. You're still finding out.
1: Zen and Buddhism in general is a way of, interestingly, paradoxically, focusing on the self. And what are you focusing on when you're meditating and you're completely quiet and you're not moving and you're not paying attention to the outside environment? You're focusing on yourself. But in the context of trying to Defocus the self, of trying to de center the self. So there's a paradoxical quality to that that appeals to me and hopefully works. <laughs> so
2: as you two are going through your, your own lives, journeys, figuring out penguin or peacock, how did you come together and, and write this book? What were you trying to solve, if anything at all?
1: Well, we were. Set up. It was like an arranged marriage because my publishers were not business publishers at all. And her publisher was a business publisher, but with values driven. I think it came originally from my publisher's side. They want, they wanted to follow up to my What Would Buddha Do book, which was, you know, successful. And, you know, well, where are we going to apply this? And someone suggested, you know, what well, should be business? Business it should be business. And I don't know squat about business, really, right? I know these principles as it, as it turns out. BJ has taught me and time has taught me apply to business really really well but I didn't know that at the time so the two presses hooked us up we had a, like a trial date and we really we really liked each other so oh, we can make this working and it wasn't just our personalities that jibed but we realized right from the get go at least I think that that our expertise overlapped a lot and we just didn't know it
0: yet His publisher called my publisher and said we have this successful author who's written this book about Buddhism, and now we want him to do a sequel on business, but he doesn't know anything about business. So could could we team him up with one of your authors who knows something about business and they could write it together? And for some reason, my publisher called me. I had been buying books on Buddhism for years, but just never got around to reading them. And I thought, this is fantastic. I'll get paid to learn about Buddhism. It felt like a A gift, you know, I looked up, I went, thank you, God. Like this felt like a gift for my spiritual path that I was going to get to learn about Buddhism. So Franz didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. And we brought our beginner's minds together and became what Franz calls the two-headed Buddha monster. And we both happened to live in Los Angeles. So we just met for dinner one night to see if we liked each other. And then went back to our respective houses and started writing. And I don't think we saw each other for another nine months. We just, we would, you know, send stuff back and forth and I'd write things and I'd send them to him and he'd sprinkle Buddha dust on them and he'd write things and send them to me and I'd put this and put that in. And then we got together and just laid out, we wrote extra chapters. We wrote lots of chapters and then culled the weakest ones. Oh, and the other thing I did was I made a list of all the complaints that my uh, consulting clients have. What do I hear people complain about? Where's the pain? And then some basics like, how would Buddha write a good mission statement? What would Buddha say about leadership? So I sort of just gave, you know, had this whole list of topics and we just made sure we covered all those topics. Then we kind of divvied it up into natural chapters and the book organically took place or took form. Mm And that was 20 years ago. The first edition of this book was published in um, 2001, and it was called What Would Buddha Do at Work? So the one that you reference is actually the second edition that we updated. We took about 25% of the stuff out, added and updated some things like what would Buddha say about globalization, downsizing, outsourcing, all the things that were happening because the world of business is always changing like the world of everything is always changing. So we had a chance to update it and keep it current. And it's, it's sold, it's published in at least 10 or 11 other languages. And I think the highest compliment we ever got was from that businessman in Sri Lanka who emailed us and said that he was so grateful for the book because the monks in Sri Lanka didn't know anything about business. And they couldn't help him with his business problems. And he was so grateful that we took Buddha's teachings and applied them to business problems. And I thought that was probably the highest compliment we're going to get from a real life Buddhist businessman, you know, Buddha's country. And it was great. So
1: other than you managing to get the Dalai Lama to agree to look forward, that was pretty cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that was the high point of my literary career was landing the Dalai
1: yeah. Lama. Was that through an, an email? Yes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Several emails. It took more than there, one. There, there, there are levels. You have to get through a, several different <laughs> series of hoops to get to him. So.
0: We were finished with the manuscript, and I said, oh, I want to forward by the Dalai Lama. And Frantz said, sure you do. Everybody <laughs> does. And our publisher said the same thing, like, what's your plan B? And I said, I'm a peacock. I don't have a plan B. And uh, I said, just hold two pages. Let me give it a shot. Just hold two pages. And so first of all, I looked him up on the internet. He's easy to find. His address and phone number, everything's on the internet. So I sent him an email and uh, sent him a packet with some books and, you know, the manuscript and everything. Silence. Okay. So email didn't work. And then I remembered my son had spent a a few years studying with a Tibetan lama. So I emailed him. I said, Tulku. I want to get a forward from the Dalai Lama. Can you help me? And he goes, oh, sure. My cousin works at this foundation down the street from the Dalai Lama's offices. So contact my cousin. He'll tell you, just do whatever he says to do. And so I did. And the cousin shepherded this along. And the next thing you know, in the mail, in registered mail, shows this beautiful document on the Dalai Lama's letterhead with a signature and everything, which I promptly framed, my son laughed at me, he said, "You know mom it's just a it's just a piece of paper. The Dalai Lama would laugh at you. You're making this big deal about it. It's just a piece of paper that's not very Buddhist of you <laughs> <laughs> This attachment I had to this piece of paper, so it was a great adventure, and Franz was happy, and our publisher was happy, and I was happy and
1: yeah, what
0: well, you said earlier about not having a
1: fallback position, about you know, committing completely to the first opportunity and then well, something else will evolve if that doesn't happen. If you're already compromising before you've even begun, not only does that suggest that you're, you're not going to be externally successful, but it also suggests that you've created an internal environment where you've
0: already failed. Where you don't have confidence in yourself. Yeah. And the, the key is it was a really good spiritual exercise to hold my request lightly, to ask, but to not cling, not grasp, not like, I have to have this. It was like, we wrote a really good book, and it's good with or without the Dalai Lama. It's fine. So if we get the Dalai Lama, fantastic. If we don't get the Dalai Lama, the book is still really great. And I kept telling myself, well, the Dalai Lama agrees with everything we wrote, We're on the same team. We're out there to help people eliminate suffering in their lives. Why wouldn't he say yes? We're preaching the same gospel here. And so, of course, he's going to say yes. But I had to hold it with my hands open. He has other things he's
1: doing. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Really? You know, this idea of
2: letting go of the outcome or holding your hands, like you just said, open and not grasp clasping or grasping. I couldn't hear which word you said makes me think of something that I do want, want to talk about is that often I feel like, especially living in our Western societies, we, we grasp on or hold on to these beliefs that in order to be successful, we need this, or we lack so much in our lives. We lack money. We lack resources. We lack friendships. We lack meaningful pr- friendships. We lack things, a lot of lack. And then we, we kind of get narrow focus on this tight grasp on how do we get that. And I, I think you guys would call that desire in the book. Craving and desire. Craving and desire. Now, when we think about craving and desire in this grasp around money, I don't want to dismiss that for some people. The basic needs, that is grasp and that's necessities in their lives. And for some people, that grasp is making sure there's basic food and shelter. For people who are beyond that level of relationship with money, what teachings do you think Buddha and Buddhism can... Help us tame this ever changing, this ever longing desire to have more and more so that we can help eliminate from what I recall, or read from the book, eliminate this dukkha in our lives.
0: It's an addiction. It's an addiction that I always need more. If you know any wealthy people, you know, they're they're still driven. You know, multimillionaires are still driven because it's never enough. It's 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 an addiction. A couple of things. One is... Getting back to your earlier point, some of the happiest people I've met are the poorest people. They've got love. They've got community. They have music. They have joy. And some of the most generous people are the people, in fact, the Tulku, the Tibetan Lama said, you know, he was always raising money for his children's monastery in India. He said, the most generous people in fundraising are the ones who have the least. And the rich people cling to their wealth so there's an, actually an inverse relationship between gratitude and generosity and poverty and wealth it's it's kind of surprising but um, what fran said earlier about a certain basic we were just talking about it before the podcast there's a business consultant decades ago frederick herzberg who wrote a a treatise about what really motivates employees and he divided it into two sets of factors He gave an unfortunate name to one set. He called them hygiene factors, but it was really about basics, pay, safe working conditions, having the tools you need for your job, good lighting, good ventilation, stuff like that. The absence of those things will make you unhappy, but the presence of those things doesn't necessarily make you happy. There's just sort of a baseline that you have to have. The other category were motivational things, and those are not money. Money's a hygiene factor. It's not a motivational factor. So what really motivates people is love, autonomy, flexibility, interesting work, the chance to make a difference, recognition of your peers. And so I think that's true outside the business world too. And so when I talk to people about money, I say, you know, what's the feeling that you're after? People say, I want more money, I want more car." They create vision boards. I want a car, I want a house, I want this, I want ethical. What's the feeling you're after? Because they're what happens is they're confusing means and ends. The car and the house and the cool job and the hot chick and all that, That's that's a means to an end. But I say, let's focus on the end. How do you want to feel? And create a vision around that. I want to feel loved. I want to feel fully self-expressed. I want to feel creative. I want to feel free. Oh, well, then let's explore all the possible ways to create that feeling in your life and not get hung up on the means. And that helps them relinquish that grasp, thinking that money is the answer to everything.
1: Because every one of those values you just mentioned there as the ends are impermanent. To use the word about them, They're, they're relational and impermanent and not reducible to anything material at all. They're free. Yeah, they're free, which is, which is why it's not intrinsically good or bad from a Buddhist perspective to be rich or poor. It, it, it simply doesn't matter in terms of your becoming free from dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering, but that's too narrow a, a definition. It really, it really means it's really closer to dissatisfaction or frustration. And I think particularly dissatisfaction is is a really good translation, especially for us living in a capitalist society in which we are taught to be dissatisfied. We're taught that we don't have enough. And if we could just have more, it would be better. So we need to be better workers. We need to produce more. We need to buy more. That's from pre-K to graduate school education and dissatisfaction. It's not in the interest of capitalism to make us happy. And yet, we here we are living in a capitalist culture, and we know that lack of money after a certain point does make us unhappy, it, it, because life is just too difficult in that situation, even to afford you those opportunities to have relationships and so on. Like mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. So this dissonance is always going to be present. To solve that and to ever have any kind of financial happiness, we need to solve that problem internally. This dissatisfaction, I think it,
2: it's hitting on a central point of this capitalistic system that we live in. It, it's perpetuating that dissatisfaction. And I like your point on it, it has to come within. I feel like it's two different paradigms here where Buddhism is a lot of internal satisfaction, understanding ourselves in the internal conversations and freeing ourselves from the objects. But yet we are all participants of this capitalistic system how if anything at all can these two coexist together or how can we release the
1: tension that that capitalist system has on our desires this is a really very alive question in buddhism right now and so i really appreciate being able to address it because i'm curious what i'm going to say since i'm trying to work out the answer for myself you know, Buddhism has, has stereotypically been seen as an internal religion, mystical religion. It's all about readjusting the internal self. And, you know, even today in mindfulness, as it's been applied in healthcare and in, in general for workers, corporations really like workers to be, to do these mindfulness courses because it makes them better workers, more compliant workers, more productive workers. There's an increasing a criticism and an awareness of that within the Buddhist community over the last, especially just over the last five or ten years, and it's beginning to turn to an acceptance and even an embracing of this a new paradigm that could maybe bridge those two that you, you just mentioned, Sean, that bridge the inner and the outer. And they, they say, isn't it ironic that, you know, Buddhism is supposed to be all about interrelationality and yet we're all super focused on ourselves. What if we decided that awakening, which is the Buddha, in Buddhism, it's the central experience that we're trying to get, is something that can really only be had in community. And what if we create new forms of community within our sanghas, that is within our little Buddhist organizations, but also within the larger sphere of society that, that resist the inner outer paradigm and the idea that, that I have to succeed and it's all about me. What if, what if awakening itself was, were communal, and we all were in it together. When you think of it that way, you begin to think of creating structures that challenge me thinking and also challenge capitalism itself. Not just not to do away with it, since no other financial system has been any better than capitalism there, and to be worse. So it's what we've got to work with. But I find this really exciting. Going beyond this focus on me also tends to deprivilege the loudest voices in the room, which are usually like old white men like me, and it's really good to, to take a step back. So if I can't find the perfect way to do this or the answer to this, fine. Some young person of color is probably going to have a lot more insight into this than me, and I should be listening to them and try to help them be an ally in that process. So Buddhism has become a place in which we can really, I think,
0: work on society, not just ourselves. Christian teachings would echo that. There's a phrase in the Bible that says the kingdom of God is within you. But if you go look at the original Aramaic in which it's written, there are many scholars who say it was mistranslated. What it really says is the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in community. Wherever two or more gathered, God is there. And that American capitalism, American culture overvalues the individual and undervalues community. Asian cultures in general, in general, overvalue community and undervalue the individual. There are some European countries which seem to have a uh, democratic socialism seems to have a better balance. Germany, Denmark, places like that, they know how to do community and they value it, and they know how to do individuality and they value. There's a healthy interdependence between the individual and the collective that Americans just don't get. I mean, all of our cultural heroes, the Lone Ranger and Superman, and, you know, they're all lone figures and that we have this and this emphasis on me and my rights and my pursuit of happiness and a almost a total disregard for community and collective to our detriment because we are social creatures we are social beings who thrive in community there's an old saying that if you if you want to travel fast travel alone if you want to travel far travel together and american capitalism totally misses that whole that whole thing so until they come to some balance the pendulum is individualism in America. It's collectivism in Asia. And if we can come in the middle and see the, the dance, the balance, the interdependence between the individual and the collective, then we have a world that will work for
1: everyone. Buddhism is not anti money right? Because it said the successful person, the wise successful person is surrounded by this cloud of other people. It's like they have, they're wise because they... Use their money for their children and their in their community, and they're giving money to these priests and they're giving money to organizations and so on. And so that wise use of money in that sense is is not just okay, it's actually laudable, it's actually a good thing. But but you see that person is surrounded by community, levels of community from from the family to their temple to their society. It's rich and interrelational and really Beautiful. It's not coincidental that that we don't really have that down here in the states, at least. You have your own problems (laughs) over the border, but you know our country is really scarcely a country at all anymore. If it ever was,
0: it's a collection of tribes, warring tribes,
2: warring tribes. There's a nice passage in your book that talks about the emptiness of money, but it's more so that I like the the one quote. It talks about the intoxication effects. That money has when we talk about these individual cultures or individual way of being that the united states is is feeling and many other countries as well how do you feel like if someone's listening and they're in this system of being having many desires unconscious desires for more money influencing them and they're like you know what i want to i want to step back and channel my inner peacock and how can i learn to do this dance that we're talking about what would be some ways that we can start doing this dance without being scared by the holiness of the study
1: or the vastness of this study. Or not study, way of being, I'll use. I do this, so I begin in my life. And I think I would advise others to try to do this with an acceptance of ourselves as interrelated and as shunya, which is the, the Sanskrit term. But it means, it's usually translated as empty, but it really means more etymologically, it means swollen. It means hollow inside. And that sounds maybe negative. I mean, I guess it definitely sounds negative, right? But, but what, that, what does that mean? That means that what's inside us is the same as what's outside us. So when we accept that, well, let's put it, let's phrase it another way. When we deny that emptiness, when we think, oh, it's just something that I can fill up, then we try to fill it up. And the classic thing to try to fill that up. With is money because money is the ultimate, well, it's an empty signifier, but, you know, but, it, but it, it's an index of all things that we think that we could have. But we can't ever fill that up. It's actually a bottomless pit. <laughs> and we have to then accept that. We are never going to fill in any monetary way or any material way our need to feel full, right? We can't feel that fullness that we want. So what do we need to do? We need to let go of that desire. And you need to let go of that desire. We need to let go of the idea that we are a separate self at all. And that sounds kind of depressing, but it's really a liberatory experience. When when we let go of that, then we're free to interact. Then we're free to be with people and all sentient beings and just the beauty of life. It's there for us all the time, offering itself to us every second. And we're only able to accept that gift when we're not trying to do something else, which is focus on filling up me. So it sounds like a negative thing. I've got to accept that I'm not fundamentally real or I'm not, there's no center to me that I can fill up. But it really, when you experience it, is beautiful and positive.
0: I think one of the ways to, to do that is to question our stories. There's a wonderful spiritual teacher here in California. I went up to Esalen some years ago to spend a weekend with her. And outside the bookstore was a sign that said, who would you be without your story? And I thought, oh, I don't know, but I'd like to find out because we live in these stories. There is what happens in the world. And then there's the story we tell about what happened. We live in those stories as if they're true. And we look all around the world and you'll see, say, Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has his story about what's going on and why he needed to invade that country. I mean, if I could get a hold of him, I'd say, you know, tell me what story you're you're telling yourself. The Ukrainians have a different story. This is our line. And then we duke it out over whose story is right. Wars are fought over it. People are slaughtered over it. Genocides happen. Religions fight. We get so attached to our stories. If we could step back from that story and question it gently, lovingly, question our own stories and help each other question theirs. We might find that we have way more in common than we think that we are, as Buddha said, we are all one. We are just as the, the, the fingers and the thumb are all part of the hand. You know, the thumb doesn't say, I come <laughs> first. I'm an individual. Screw you guys. He's interconnected with the other four fingers. And there we are.
1: I'm putting in my scholar hat now for a second. Mm -hmm. I would only just revise that in one way, which is that the Buddha didn't say that we're one, but rather that we're not two. That may sound like a distinction without a difference, but to (laughs) me, that's really important because it emphasizes not some kind of fundamental unity, which Buddhism fundamentally denies. So, but I, I won't get into that whole philosophy and the difference between Hinduism and Buddhism. We're getting into the weeds here. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I'm, pull, I'm pulling this out. I'm pulling this out. Yeah. But again, relationality. Yeah. We're not two in the sense that we're not separate. We are interconnected. And it's not just that we like enjoy our interconnections. We are the interconnections. Hmm. There's nothing oh, else but the interconnections. Mm-hmm. And so our stories, as you've been describing them, are some kind of thing that exists like just in ourselves. And that's why they're not satisfying. Because they're not the interconnection. They're empty. It makes me
2: think like we talk a lot about money stories on our podcast and blended narrative psychology. And, you know, this capitalism, this d- desire, and I, I agree. I just, I want, I agree. Like financial systems haven't been very successful, and capitalism to some degree has elements that work, but many elements that are causing a lot of pain and suffering. But if we have this emptiness of money and capitalism is, the pursuit of money, basically, like, like, turn a profit. But there's this hollowness, to use your word, this emptiness of money that really promotes individualism. And the teaching that we're just talking right now is we aren't separate. It just seems doomed to fail. And, and we see this happening. The more we try to separate, the more dissatisfied we are.
0: So we should all pack up and move to Denmark.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I, I interested I, I, I had a, a Dr. Robert biswas Diener, he studied individuals in Denmark and the United States. He's American and about their happiness and money levels. And it was fascinating. Basically, in Denmark, there's very little variance between happiness levels. In the U.S., it's very large, disproportionate. But when, when we look at this idea of this hollowness and emptiness of money and the stories we tell ourselves, like, I need to get more money, I need to get more money, I'll, I'll be happy when. How could the, the you mentioned earlier, friends, impermanence. Do you think acceptance, to use a word you've been saying quite a bit here, the acceptance of life, the impermanence of life, can help us maybe move a little bit more towards this collectiveness, towards this, I guess, taming this desire to acquire more and more?
1: Yeah, because I was just listening to you know one of your previous guests really? earlier today talking about money is only important if it brings, insofar as it brings you happiness, and happiness is always experiential. It's never material. So even when happiness comes originally from a material thing, it's never really satisfying unless it's shared. And then it becomes relational again. When we let go of this desire to always have more, we're able to experience the experiences that we have right now. And so you can think about having other things, and it's still fine to work toward goals, but... Not at the cost of not enjoying where you are right now. So I, that's why I think that, that the idea of impermanence helps because impermanence means that you're not going to be able to hold on to anything anyway in the future. So all you have is what is right now. So to see, you can savor that. And, and the, so the work then is to learn how to savor it more. That can be hard. You know, it's hard if you're at the bottom of the, of the ladder when what you have to savor is meager. It's also hard at the top of the ladder. If you've trained yourself to always be unhappy and tell, a, and tell a negative story, look at the ex-president of the United States. I mean, like at the peak of his power, he was still so unhappy. His story that he was telling himself was like that he was powerless. It's crazy. President of the United States. And well, he's
0: right. He was the victim. He's the victim of his own yep. created story. Absolutely. He lived in his stories as if they weren't true. And I would just piggyback on what Fran said that I, I don't, or maybe I would, Add a little different element that I... Make it more practical. Okay. That gratitude is the antidote. That gratitude and retraining our monkey minds. I don't think we're taught to want more. It's in our minds that the human mind is a mismatch detector. It will always notice what's wrong before it notices what's right. Which is, if you think about our caveman days, that was biologically functional. If you walk into your cave and something's amiss, it's like, oh, danger. So our our brains have evolved to look for what's wrong, what's missing. Like 10 things can be right, but the 11th one is wrong. And where does the mind go? Boom, laser focus, what's missing? So our mind is has a negative default position that we're thrown to unless we reprogram the mind and retrain it. And that's where gratitude comes in. And some of my Workshops, I, I I teach people, you know, when you're out walking your dog, look for three things that you're grateful for. When you're driving to work, look for three things you're grateful for. Because the, you know, the science of neuroplasticity tells us that those grooves in our minds, we can carve new grooves. We can develop new habits. We're always doing that. We're
1: always the doing that. problem is that we're usually doing it unconsciously unconsciously and reinforcing the
0: negative the negative yeah that's right there's a national geographic photographer by the name of dewitt jones whose motto is celebrate what's right with the world and i love that it's just teaching ourselves a new habit to and ken blanchard you know one of our favorite management teachers says catch people doing something right and acknowledge them for it just say way to go that was that was terrific what you said in that meeting sean That was so great. It cost nothing. But if we got in the habit of gratitude, appreciating one another, looking for what makes us happy. I wake up every morning. Now, I'm almost 73 years old. I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, wow, nothing hurts. (laughs) 73 and nothing hurts. Fantastic. I'd better get up and make the most of this day because the day may come when something hurts. So it's like, what am I grateful for? Nothing hurts. Woo! We can learn those things and we can surround ourselves with people who remind us when we forget. That last statement,
1: surround ourselves with people that can remind us, because there was one the story from the Theravada Buddha's canon about the, the Buddha was talking to one of his, his assistant Ananda, I think it was, and made a comment that he saw, they saw some, some, some other bhikkhus, some, some Buddhist ascetics that were getting along and they were talking to each other and it all looked really good and they seemed like they were making spiritual progress. And Ananda says to the Buddha, you know, teacher, I think maybe surrounding yourselves with a good community is half the spiritual life. And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, it's the whole of the spiritual life. So, again, that redirects us. Because I love this story. I love that nothing hurts. But then where do we take that? And so if, if we just leave it within ourselves, then we're stalled, stall, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll take that out, find your friends, surround yourselves with other people who, who are going to be doing that because you'll be doing that for them and they'll do it for you. And then you're going to generate this energy that takes it beyond the individual and out into that community that we were talking yeah. about before. Because we're,
0: we're slow learners and we're fast forgetters. Mm. All of us. All of us. And so we... We need to surround ourselves with people who remind us what we already know but we forgot. Because we can get caught up in the nitty gritty, or that negative default position kicks in and we're back into the and then somebody says I remember once when I was still in my corporate job and I was so mad at my employer and I was stomping around in the in the kitchen and and my son came in and he's standing there at the doorway and he goes, Forgiveness, mom. And I went, What? And he said forgiveness. It's all about forgiveness. And I went, <laughs>
2: oh, you know,
0: like, he's this wise old Buddha born into this young body who occasionally throws pearls of wisdom in front of his mother. <laughs> and it's like, and he's right. He's always right. You know, that the children are come into that. They're closer to the spiritual world. They're closer to the other realm because they just recently left it. And the wisdom that comes out of the mouths of, Of children, it's, um, you know, they are our teachers. They are our teachers if we will heed them. Mm, They will say many wise things if we will Mm -hmm. heed them. And they just remind us what we already know. On
1: another level, they also remind us to, you know, to let go. With my daughter going off to college 3,000 miles away, in a couple of months, I'm really aware of my choice here. This is that emptiness too. again, you know, if, if I define myself as a very involved dad, then all I have is a future of loss. If I define myself as, as a dad who loves his daughter a lot, <laughs> i try trying not to cry in the middle of the podcast. If I define myself that way, then I'm not, as you were saying before, I'm not clasping or I'm grasping. I'm defining myself in relationship and just holding it there. And then, and then I don't have to be unhappy Right? Because I'm she's still here. I'm already unhappy. Well, that's dysfunctional. Anticipatory right? grieving. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's not the term the Buddha would use, but he was all about that. He would totally understand. So where do I let go so much of the I in, in that relationship? And just know that the relationship is a beautiful thing. And the relationship will always exist, even when I don't exist anymore, which is what I want. I want to die before my daughter. Wow, well, if you put it in those terms, then I really have to let go of the <laughs> and I. And that may seem like it's far away from, from, from finances, but it's the same dynamic. If I had to find myself as someone who wants to be rich, well, you know, want is a really interesting verb in, in English because it has these two meanings, right? We use it to mean desire something. I, I desire something. I want something. I desire it, But it really literally means I lack that I like thing. It if I find myself as I'm a someone who wants to be rich, then I am constantly going to be in Dukkha, dissatisfaction, until I'm rich. And that's unlikely. So we need to get away from defining ourselves that way.
2: I want to talk about then, because this is really making me think, Because and I agree this whole conversation to me is the important underbelly of this relationship with we have with money. The technical things they can solve themselves when we get the... The important things underneath solved. But financial planning as it is, is all about I want. I want to open up this account. I want to save this much more. I need, not even want, I need to have this much to be financially free, which is a word that is interesting. With this conversation around removing the dukkha or the dissatisfaction, detaching ourselves from the desired outcome, those are things that i attribute to the current financial planning system is i need this much to retire i'm going to be i'm very attached to a certain outcome and if that doesn't happen well i'm already setting myself up to failure when you think of cultivating a happy thriving relationship with money call it a financial plan or a happy relationship with money what do you think the buddha would suggest is financially free or what can we draw what lessons can we draw from from his teachings That would help us define what financially free means. For many people, U.S., Canada, Europe, financially free might be having X amount of money so that you don't have to work. But really, from what we're talking about, I don't know if that's financially free.
0: I think, you know, Buddha would say that money is, it's a tool. It's like a hammer. It's neutral. We imbue it with power. We tell stories about it. We believe the stories about it. But those are totally those are totally created. And so it's fine to want money, but don't expect it to make you happy. That as long as my happiness is conditional on something external to me, I'm doomed. I am doomed. Then I am at the whims of the financial market, my inheritance, my earning, my whatever. There's another wonderful book I like a lot. It says choose happiness. I just choose to be happy, no matter what, but I don't, now that's not to say I don't feel, have feelings about certain things. You know, when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was like, oh crap. But if a problem has no solution, it's not a problem. It's just a fact. And so then it's like, okay, so Alzheimer's is part of the new reality. It's detaching our happiness from anything external, money, relationships, success, fame. I've spent a lot of years chasing the New York Times bestseller list, chasing Oprah, chasing, you know, wanting to get on the show, wanting to be in the book club, blah, 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 blah. I was exhausted. I sort of ran into a brick wall and I thought, wow, I'm not happy. I am not happy in that pursuit because I'm not a great Buddhist. You know, I'm the worst horse. I'm the worst horse. <laughs> And so I realized that I too had gotten seduced by that cultural myth that if that fame and success will make me happy. And so I had to have a, like a come to Jesus talk with myself, well, what really makes me happy? When am I happiest? I'm happiest when I'm doing spiritual stuff, when I'm reading, meditating, having conversations with people in my spiritual community, feeling interconnected feeling that kingdom of God, ah, uh, that's what makes me happy. Then it was like, okay, do more of that. Do more of that. Let go of Oprah. Just gently let her go with love. Let the New York Times go with love. Just release them. And you know what? I was a lot happier after that. When we decide what we want, when we do our
1: financial planning, what we should be planning around is what makes us happy, what's likely to make us happy. Not, and that's not money. Now, money may be part of the equation to get that. It's possible. You know, if if you really want to live by the ocean, you know, that's expensive. But you shouldn't be thinking, I need a million dollars so I can buy an oceanfront house. You should be thinking, how hard do I want to work to live by the ocean? And will I, will I enjoy that process? Because the process is all we have. And the other level is that what is likely to make you happy in the future is what makes you happy now. So think about what makes you happy right now. If you're concerned about money, it probably means you think you don't have enough money and you need to have more money to be happy. Well, you're probably wrong about that because some things make you happy now while you don't have money. What are those? I mean, write them down. Make a list. Like that should be the first thing you do with a financial planner, I think. What do I know? But that's what I think is you should be like, Sean, you should be asking people what makes you happy you know, could give me a list of those things and then we'll talk about what you need to do financially so that you can maximize those experiences in your life. I bet you really do do that. I was trained as a traditional financial planner. And over the last 10 years, I
2: we go and, like, hey, surface level, you asked that question, but we didn't, the depth wasn't there. And to your Sri Lanka writer, applying this wisdom to business, like he, he couldn't find someone over, over in Sri Lanka to do that, I think really could benefit. our industry, financial planning, because we go strictly at how much money do you need? And I fell into that narrative and it really wasn't until I had kids, uh, my oldest son is six now, and that I started to like question like what really makes me happy. And it's supercharged when COVID hit and I didn't work for three months because my wife was teaching and I got to walk my kids to daycare every single day. And I was just like, whoa, what is this? I got to go on bike rides and yeah. yeah. So clean poopy diapers that I didn't expect to. And that was enjoyable. And now, yeah, it's it things things have changed. So, Franz, to your point. Yeah, I think that getting to that depth is I think that sometimes we're. I speak from experience guarded that these stories are so strong. And it it took me going to talk to my inner critic of why did I attach so much control to money? And anyhow, so I, I agree. Our industry needs needs your book. <laughs>
0: I want to jump in there and add one more thing. There's a, a financial teacher here in Los Angeles. Her name is Chelly Campbell. And one of the things, she she she's financial stress reduction classes, and she's written several books. And one of the, her teachings is find other ways to get what you want. You know, there isn't just one way, like I have to buy it or I have to own it. And I'll just give you a quick example from her life that she had, she'd gotten a divorce She was belly up, her chief, she had a bookkeeping business and her chief client left and she was going to lose her house. So there she was, homeless, divorced, and her business was in the toilet. She liked to play poker and she was playing poker with some friends one night and they were saying, well, you know, what are you going to do? Where are you going to live? She said, well, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. And somebody said, why don't you go live with Shelly? She's got this big house over in Brentwood. And she's recently divorced and it's a big four bedroom house and she's there all by herself. And she and Shelly said, yeah, come live with me. That's a good idea. Well, 20 years later, she's still there. And so she, she lives in Brentwood in a multi million dollar house. She gets two bedrooms, one for her office and one for sleeping. She would teach her workshops in the living room of this house. She goes to, you know, the same restaurants that, that Maria Schreiber and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all those people go to. So she's in a hoity-toity neighborhood, beautiful ocean breezes, big, beautiful house, and she rents. She started off like at $600 a month, and now I think probably now it's about $1,200 a month. She said, find, enough, find other ways to get what you want. There are lots. Homeownership is one way to get what you want. I don't want, you know, if the roof leaks, I don't want to deal with that. I would encourage people to practice divergent thinking. Convergent thinking says there's only one right, one right answer. Convergent thinking says I need more money. Divergent thinking is hmm, what are all the possible ways I could get what I want? And maybe, and maybe none of them involve money and make it a game, you know, gamify it and really put on your, cultivate your natural creativity and look for alternative ways to get what you want. Happiness, happiness, because you have freedom. When we have freedom and we have choices, people feel really miserable when they feel trapped and they feel like they have no options. You give people options and it's all of a sudden like, Oh, well I could do this. I could do that. I could do, Oh goodness. It's when people feel trapped or stuck. There's only one, one way to get there and if they can't get there, then they're really, they're really upset and, and, and miserable. So practice divergent thinking and look for other ways to get what you want. Here, I'll
1: give you a really divergent thought. Just came to mind and you were talking, it may sound out of the blue, but it, it's kind of the epitome of I think, what we're getting at here in terms of what makes you happy. When my daughter went to a nursery school, we went to a co-op nursery school, which means it's a small group of people, small group of families. You work at the school, you learn all the kids, you play with them, you learn the parents. Everybody trusts each other. Everybody is on a first name basis. Everybody begins to actually love each other. And that nursery school had a yearly camping trip. And that camping trip was to Joshua Trees, beautiful national park here in California. And we would get a large group campsite. So there'd be maybe 80 people there, every single one of whom I knew and cared about. And I remember... One day, looking at the campsite, I had gone away to a, the car or something, so I had a wider view of it, and it was in the evening and I saw, you know this beautiful natural uh, environment with the campfires burning and all the people out there that I cared about. and I thought, "Oh my God, this is my tribe. I'm in a tribe. I have a tribe." You know, we were camping. We were like, you know, we we're dirty and we didn't own anything there. And, and all that mattered was that experience of community. Oh, I was so powerful. I was thinking about it because the, the best views of the ocean, if you want ocean view, 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 front views, the best oceanfront views are usually in a park. Mm-hmm. You can't get on it, but you can go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So anyway, that's kind of the, the ultimate value. Now, now I'm back in the city and so on. And I do own a house or, you know, a percentage of a house. I, I like my house. I understand that it's important when you have kids. It's really good to have an equity in a home that you can be transferring to them to give them more possibilities. But it's not to give them the home. It's to give them the possibilities. Even if that means going to college across the United States. <laughs> you know, they make terrible choices like that. <laughs>
2: The ocean thing, Franz, when you mentioned that, I, I started thinking about like what is the feeling that you want from that ocean view house? Maybe it's not even actually the ocean house. What are you like even running from? And then when you brought up the you know park could be the best view, I thought, yeah, that's a great a great example that maybe we don't need that house. Because I believe it was a quote from Buddha or your guys' quote in the book, how he said the best things in life are free. Best things in life aren't things. Aren't things, sorry. Aren't things, yeah. Just it made me really think about yeah. my relationship with money when I read that.
0: Years ago, when I was looking for, to buy my house in Los Angeles, a girlfriend said to me, you know, BJ, you never take vacations. So you should buy a house that feels like you're on vacation. And I did. It just feels it's, it's up on top of a hill. It's a 1953 stucco box on top of a hill with a killer view of the city, a little slice of ocean, Griffith Park, beautiful trees. Now, it's a teardown. It's a million-dollar teardown in Los Angeles. And all of my neighbors have these big, expensive houses. I bought the cheapest little box on the top of the hill. I have the same view they do. I enjoy the same trees. I breathe the same air. We walk our dogs together. I have a million-dollar teardown. They have two and three-million-dollar mansions. It doesn't affect the view. It doesn't change the trees. It doesn't – and it still feels like I'm on vacation. Now, I could focus on, oh, God, the bathroom needs remodeling or, oh, you know, I need to fix the deck or I need to do that. But I just don't focus on that stuff. I I just say, welcome to my million-dollar teardown. <laughs> Isn't the view amazing? I feel like I'm on vacation.
2: That's great. I just met you, but I feel like you describing that you have a home that feels like a vacation makes sense. I think that's what yeah. <laughs> you seem like. You seem like that. That would be something that you would have. You seem like you really embrace this life.
0: <laughs> I'm an Air Force kid, so I don't want to travel anymore. I did tons of that for 20 years. So, I, you know, it's like I'm a homebody and I want my home to feel like I'm on vacation. So when I look at other vacation spots, I think I already have that. I have the view, I have the breeze, I have the trees, I have lovely people. Like no, nope, don't, don't need to get on a plane. I got it right here. It's okay.
1: You can see why I wanted to write a book with BJ as soon as I had the opportunity. Yeah, and
2: and I see the chemistry in sense of, in the sense of Franz. You can tell the the depth and the the level of knowledge you have in Buddhism and the study of it and. BJ, of course, yourself, but you really apply it practically, and, and that comes across so well in the book.
0: We did get accused by one reviewer of spiritual materialism who said that we were prostituting too strong a word.
1: <laughs>
0: Probably not. He scolded us for maybe a spiritual appropriation yeah. of taking deep, deep spiritual truths and offering them to people in the workplace to deal with a difficult boss or an angry customer or and you know we read we read the review we talked it over and we went yeah guilty as That's charged fine no. spiritual <laughs> materialism <laughs> it's okay because our goal is to help minimize suffering in the workplace mm-hmm. so if buddha has some concepts and tools that can help people do that well of course he'd want to share them and buddhism is above all a practical Philosophy and that Franz even calls himself he 's practically Buddhist, you know it 's ultimately practical. Buddha was the wisest therapist, the wisest psychologist who had the deepest insights into human nature of anybody i 've ever read let 's teach that to people so they can apply it in their own lives and lessen their suffering.
1: It reminds me that there's a the Zen teacher, David Loy, has written about. The relationship of Buddhism and money. And he made this, I think, brilliant observation that money is not materialistic. In fact, we maybe should be more materialistic. When we're concerned with money, we're concerned with an abstraction. We're not concerned with what's right here in front of us, which is the material world. We probably should be more materialistic and and less money-focused. It's really ironic. And mm-hmm. he's not saying that's going to make us need more money or be more concerned with money. He's saying actually being really materialistic, being spiritually materialistic is going to help us marginalize the reification of, of financial success as material success. Material success is enjoying the berries that are ripe. Right
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's focusing on the feelings. I went right. to see my, my dad last week who's 98. And my, my brother's nephew was there and dad made us lunch. My nephew and I are sitting at the kitchen counter. Dad, you know, he made, he made a hot dog for me. He made a chicken sandwich for my nephew. He made something else for himself. He's like a short order cook, 98 years old. And I'm sitting there at the kitchen counter watching him and paying attention to my feelings. Like, I feel like I'm five years old and daddy's in the kitchen making me a sandwich. I feel loved. I feel loved. My dad's a multimillionaire. It ain't about the money. It's about, I want, da- I want to feel loved by my daddy, by my, my ancient daddy. So I think if we could focus on how do we want to feel that we really open our horizons to what might lead to those feelings that may or may not have a financial component to it, but it gives us many, many more paths to find happiness that aren't attached to money. Money's just one.
2: And it seems a lot that that money can distract us from feeling those feelings. So I think that was a really good picture you painted getting that sandwich from your father. I, I have one final question for each of you. And I do ask everybody a version of this question. Maybe, BJ, I'll ask you first. Imagine you're somewhere that brings you peace. It sounds like it's on top of the house in your stucco, stucco home, or, or on top of the the hill in your stucco box. Looking out over the ocean, in this case, or Los Angeles, wherever, somewhere that brings you peace, you're outside on a front porch, on the ground, and you're just contemplating and you're at the end of life, whatever that age is. And you decide to write a letter to your son's child about what you've learned on creating a healthy relationship with money. What would a theme be to that letter? And you can pull from whatever experience from the book, from what you've learned about Buddhism or whatever life experience you
0: have. Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. I think I would just reiterate what, much of what I've already said, particularly about money being a tool. It's like a hammer. So rather than accumulate as many hammers as you can, take the one that you have and use it creatively to create the kind of life you So if you have $100... Get creative with that $100. Find a way to make it work for you. There are lots of different ways. If you have a $1,000, if you have $10,000, but view it as neutral. It's not positive. It's not evil. It's not good. It's just neutral. It's just another tool that we use in living our daily lives and to to release the emotional attachment to it and pursue happiness and joy and freedom and whatever that looks like financially is 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 fine but don't confuse the means and the end pursue happiness not money
2: reminds me of what you talked about the process enjoy Mm. the process thank Mm you franz how about yourself and you might not be on the hill in the stucco box but anywhere that brings you peace and you're writing your letter to i don't know if you have multiple children but your daughter for sure your daughter's children if she
1: has any I have the luxury of having listened to, to BJ's answer and being able to <laughs> think about, you know, what exotic, beautiful place I would put myself. And I completely failed and it's, in a shocking lack of imagination. I put myself right here in this room, my kitchen, because I love to cook and I love to cook for my daughter. And I can imagine myself writing to her to give to her. When you have a daughter at 44, you don't necessarily expect to see grandchildren. (laughs) But imagining her grandchildren, I would say, because I think I've done a pretty good job of doing this with her so far. I think I would encourage her to strive for enough financial security so that you can share your gifts. Those could be financial gifts, charitable donations, gifts to friends, but also you know, your own particular genius to, to your own whatever it is that, that you can share that, that gives you joy to share. I, I teach at Cal State LA. My wife is a production designer. She makes a lot more money than I do. I don't do this job for the money. I am lucky enough that my wife makes enough money that, that I'm able to share my gift, which is my teaching and my cooking. Mm-hmm. Those give me great joy. Neither one of them is particularly connected with, with money. It is necessary to have money to, to cook. But luckily, when you're cooking yourself, you don't need that much money. Even a Cal State LA a salary is maybe enough to accomplish it. But it's, it's about sharing your gifts. Money should allow you to share your gifts. When you say I don't,
2: you're, you're questioning the connection to money, it makes me think, what's the cost of not sharing your gifts? Or what's the cost of not feeling enough? And it, and it seems like you—you you passed. I don't think it's a test, but the Buddha would be happy to see that the desire of being in some exotic location was your kitchen right in front of you.
1: <laughs> you hope he would like that. Both of I... us, home buddies. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today for both of yourselves. If listeners are interested in uh, hearing more of your work. Of course, the the book that we're talking about, even though we touched on a few of the book, point to where listeners can find your reading, your books, and more information about yourselves. How is your website?
0: Is it cool? Have you been updating it? No, I don't. (laughs) I have two of them and they just sit there. One is peacockproductions.com, because remember, I'm a dilettante, so I just can't have just one website. Hmm. And that's really my business to business. It's the, the diversity books, the business books, the Buddha book. And then I have bjgallagher.com, which is the women's books, inspirational gift books. Those are the two two websites. I'm also, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Just Google me. I am easy to find. I am accessible and easy to find.
1: Yeah, me too. You can go to my website, which is mindtomind.net, M-I-N-D, the number two, M-I-N-D.net. And there's a few things written there and so on. But it's it's super easy to look us up and find the books on Amazon and so on and and I'm way too active on Facebook.
0: <laughs>
1: and political. You'll get the real political side of me if you, if you hook, me up, hook up with me on Facebook.
2: Well, we'll include the show notes, and if people want to see the political side of friends, then
1: Facebook is the venue. I'm super conservative, by the way. I'm a big MAGA enthusiast, so
0: I'm sure you can tell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you just see Buddha in a MAGA hat? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> no. You're well, just, you just're messing
1: up the whole vibe We had such a good vibe it's cool. uh, <laughs> I, I I
2: appreciate watching you two together I think the the chemistry as I mentioned earlier Certainly comes through the book And it did on today's show So thank you so much for joining me
1: Without a talk My wealth is measured And now I spend my time But now I write a Freedom story With every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.